0: In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart, too? Now, printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com smart.
1: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio. It's a beautiful morning
2: ah, I think I'll go outside for a while just smile
0: Just taking some clean, fresh air for me
1: Back in the early days of rock and roll, Men and women wrote songs, played instruments, and sang vocals supported only by recording technology that is primitive compared to today. In other words, you actually had to have talent. My guest today is one of those legendary early rock and rollers, Felix Cavalieri of The Rascals. That's Felix singing and playing his Hammond B3 organ on this track. The Rascals. Felix, Eddie Brigatti, Dino Danelli, and Gene Cornish formed in 1965 and produced nine hit songs over the next three years. Songs everybody knows. Groovin', good lovin', people got to be free, and it's a beautiful morning. Felix Cavalieri's mother started him on piano at age six, but his world was turned upside down in junior high when he first heard the music of Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, and Jerry Lee Lewis. It changed his world and ours forever. Felix is originally from the New York City area, but he's lived in Nashville for decades.
3: What happened to me, basically, is is I had these gentlemen approach me that they were starting a management company, and they invited me down to Nashville to meet with them. I came down here, all of a sudden, I started to see people I knew. Like, for example, John K. Steppenwolf, Bobby Gordio was down here for Four Seasons. We had two of Springsteen's guys. We still have one. Gary Talent is still down here. I said, what is this? They said, oh, man, this is the place. I said, you sure? He said, yeah, this is the place. You should come down here. And it was so interesting because now it's very different because the word is out. But it was so nice and quaint. You could actually walk into a place and you didn't have to make an appointment. And here's my best story. When I first got here, they said, oh, there's a bank in town that you know really helps out musicians and songwriters. I said, you're kidding. He says, yeah, they got a special department for publishing and writing and songwriting. I said, it's just like New York. The department in New York was called The Exit. They welcome <laughs> you here. I said, what? And it's true. Right.
1: How long have you been down there? You said 20 years now?
3: Wow, 30 years. 30 years. 30 years I've been here. And I've watched it lose a lot of that quaintness and a lot of that, geez, just right. walk in anytime you want.
1: What would you say, I mean, your voice... Your songs, which, you know, seem from such a different era because they're so pure. Your music is so pure. It's pretty music, sung with great passion, beautiful songs, beautiful arrangements, beautiful singing, great writing. It's in that category of music that just puts people in a happy mood the minute they hear it. It relaxes them. And what I'm wondering, is there anything about the business now that's better than it used to be? Or was it all better back then?
3: No, just the technology is better. We can do this, for example. Recently, before all this pandemic started, I was doing an, an album. And then all of a sudden, everything got locked down. I was able to continue doing the album at home. See, that that's the difference, the technology. So it's good and it's bad. What's good about it is that, man, it's just so much fun to make music in your house now. Of course, you really miss the guys in the studio and all that. But we can do it online now.
1: But would you prefer when the COVID's over to be back uh, face-to-face with people? Because I'm shooting a TV show right now, and i got to say, the, the, a little bit of the joy, the camaraderie of working with people that you admire, working with people you like, and being able to relax, not every day, but some days, and just shoot the shit with them and have a good conversation with some actor or actress or writer, director that you really respect— The joy for me of acting has been who I met.
3: Oh, of course. We've done only five shows this year, but we did one in California in October. It was an outdoor venue. It was a casino. Normally, the guys go on stage and they sound check. They start about 3 o'clock, and then the show is at 8. We couldn't get them off the stage to stop rehearsing. They just missed each other so much. (laughs) One of the things that I I realized when we're doing this, I, I just did this thing for Hello TV which is a new kind of idea that what they're doing is they're filming a live show and then they're going to broadcast it. I'll tell you now, you do this all the time. You work in front of a camera and you don't necessarily have an audience. I'll tell you, man, there was no audience there. I was exhausted. I'm playing to the camera and there's nobody out there yeah. going, yay, yo, you know, this. Yeah. I was so tired at the end of that show. They feed
1: you. The audience feeds you. You grew up in uh, New York, correct? Yeah
3: pretty close to what New what York. What part of New York? Pelham, New York, right outside you the city. You in Pelham. Yeah. And what did your dad do? My family was all in medicine. I was the only one that decided to jump out to this uh, crazy world. Yeah, they were all in medicine. My dad was a dentist. My mom was a pharmacist. And basically, they just saw some talent in me. So they started when I was about five uh, classical music lessons. Playing what? Piano? Playing Piano. And then one day I went to junior high and this guy who was sitting in front of me was to become one of my dearest friends. And he said to me, he said, do hey, you like rock and roll? I didn't know what he was talking about.
1: <laughs> really?
3: I I'd never heard it. Classical music, they keep you pretty strict. How old were you at the time? I was junior high, so it was 14, 13. 13,
1: 14, like. so no Elvis, no no, not yet. no, Bill Haley, none of that 50s music.
3: It's kind of like being Catholic, you know what I'm saying? You're not allowed to go to the other, you know what I'm saying? Classical people, they don't want you to go and listen to anything. So I said, yes. I said, yeah, I like it. But I, I went home, and the good luck was that Alan Freed was in New York. He brought it from Cleveland to New York, rock and roll. Sure,
1: I remember. That's what did yeah. it,
3: man. So I heard all those things, those guys from the beginning, the piano players like Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis. It flipped me out, man. I said, man, this is so cool was the only word I could say. And then that started me. But when you're playing classical
1: piano and you're sequestered in this classical music bubble as a young boy and you start to appreciate and want to put your toe in the water there in terms of popular music and rock music. Mm. You're one of the most famous singers in the history of music. When did the singing start?
3: Just joy, man, just joy. Wow, gee, I'd love to try that, man. How cool would that be? It's just, when you start out, you start doing other people's songs. I get these right. phenomenal singers to to copy, like Benny King and, and Marvin Gaye. So you do their songs, and all of a sudden you say, man, I'm singing these songs, man. And then, and then if you're lucky, you get a style, if you're lucky. Interesting. But it's just the joy of playing and singing.
1: Now that music, of so Benny King and, and, and Marvin Gaye and any of those people that were your earliest exposure, radio was your gateway.
3: I'm hearing them on the radio, and I'm saying, like, wow. In those days, you didn't have, like, the computer to tune your voice.
1: Right. You know what I'm saying? That's why we wanted you on the show, because you could actually sing.
3: <laughs> those guys, that names are, I've mentioned, and there's so many more, they were phenomenal. are you kidding me I mean listen to these guys sing you go like hold and you know I've had the honor of meeting a lot of these guys you know and I just love it so I did it tried it who was the first person
1: that you regarded that you respected their opinion who told you you could sing who's the person that said to you keep going in that direction as a vocalist
3: Well you know I started off in the Catskills I had took a band from Syracuse University to the Catskill Mountains so now you're in college. Yeah, I'm in college. I took the summer off, and I I literally never went back. And it's a great story because Joey D's band came there, and they saw me. And they were in Europe, and their organ player quit. So they called me up to join them in Germany. And so I I flew.
1: And play the organ.
3: Play the organ, yeah. I went over there, and the way the story goes, I'm changing the subject a little bit, but they were working with this group called The Beatles, (laughs) and nobody had heard of them yet. Now, I'm a college kid deciding whether I should stay in school or look at all these girls screaming and hollering. And what is this? You know, and I remember it vividly hearing their music. I'm saying, wow, they're a singing group. They weren't that good on that. I didn't really get their music yet. And then when they did our music, being American music, they were OK. But when they did their music, it was like outstanding. So I said, I think I could do this. But it was in the Raleigh Hotel that people started paying attention to me. You know, they said, hey, man, you're pretty good, you're pretty good, you're pretty good. Half of them are trying to impress their dates. So when you
1: go to Europe to play the organ for these guys, they asked you to start singing?
3: No, they just asked me to start playing.
1: When, when does the singing begin? When do you become
3: the front man? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I got a little depressed being a side man. And I met this young lady. When we came back to the States And she said what's the matter I said man you know I've always been the front man I've always been the singer And uh, you know I'm sitting way in the back of the group And she said to me she said feel it You don't think this guy's going to let you sing do you (laughs) (laughs) And I said oh I get it So basically it was just a matter of time Before I had to start a band And there's a long story behind that We had this wonderful thing called the draft in those days
1: How'd that affect you
3: They said to me, if aliens attack, we'll call you. Other than that, go back home, because they were a little selective in the beginning. And that's when I started the band, because I could.
1: The name of the first band was what?
3: Well, I've had a number of bands. I had Felix and the Escorts. I had all this kind of thing. But, you know, when we got the guys together, that was my plan. Let, let me see if I can get the best guys that I can find in the New York area. And, and I found some really talented guys. Of course, Eddie Brigatti. I was working with his brother. And here's this little guy, man. Like, he sings sing his tail off. Unbelievable. Dancing, mm-hmm. singing. Cornish came from uh, Rochester, Gene Cornish. And uh, he was also with Joey D for a while there. And then that same young lady introduced me to Dino Denali, the drummer. And I saw right. him play one song at, at the Metropole in New York. I saw him play one song, I Who Have Nothing. And he did it such a show. I said, man, I got to ask this cat to join us. And that's how we started. Who's the one that sang that song? Tom Jones? Who made a hit out of
1: I Who Have Nothing? Jeez, I don't know. Uh, I Who you, Have No yeah, One. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, I know that song. Great song. So which collection of musicians that you put together do you get your first record deal with? Your first record contract comes, and who's aboard?
3: Well, I got a record contract up in Syracuse, but it was jive. It was just this guy trying to make money off me, and then years later it came out and they called it The Rascals. This business is is something else, man. But The Rascals really was the first major contract. Atlantic Records uh, came out to this place we were working on the island called the Barge in the Hamptons. That was the place. We got offered to do this job out there. There was this uh, major discotheque in New York called Andines. And the gentleman who owned that place invited us to do the Barge in the Hamptons for the summer. And I knew growing up near Long Island that the Hamptons was a place where a lot of people who are really important people go in the summer. Betty Davis used to summer out there. It it was wild. So I knew that if we were going to get discovered, we were going to get discovered there. And we did.
1: And that's the group that you mentioned to me before, the guys you put together? Yeah. Be, so now you have the Rascals together. Yeah. And the Rascals make their first record
3: deal when? Right then. This gentleman saw us, and he knew Sid Bernstein, the promoter who brought the Beatles to the U.S. And so Sid came out and, and wanted to manage us. He really helped us. He introduced us to all the right people. And Atlantic was the only label that would allow us to produce ourselves. I, I wanted to produce ourselves. I didn't. I didn't want somebody that I didn't know taking over. Why? Well, I had an idea, you know, I had a musical idea, you know, and I kept saying to the record look, you you like what you heard, that's why you're signing us, give us a shot. Well, here's where the fantastic luck comes in. So Atlantic signs us up and they put us in the studio with two geniuses, Arif Mardin and Tom Dowd. So it was like, thank you, is all you can say, because now we had our George Martin.
1: You respected them. (sighs)
3: giants just absolute giants what do they do
1: for a guy like you who you yourself said that you wanted to mention to atlantic i want to don't want you to trust me and do my own thing what do those guys give you a good producer does what for you
3: a good producer should bring out what you want to put on in those days tape in other words you got an idea for a song all right well let me help you Now, this guy arif mardin was a turk he came over here because what happened was Quincy Jones went to Turkey, and on the way to the airport, the way I hear it, Arif somehow got him a cassette. Before Quincy landed back in the United States, he contacted him and asked him to come and join and be a professor at Berkeley. That's how good this guy was. So he ended up producing like Bette Midler. He ended up as Shaka Khan, Bee Gees. When you got somebody like that on your team, it's like an encyclopedia of music standing right over here. Wow. You know, I like to do a French song. I like to do a song that sounds like How Can I Be Sure. Oh, no problem. Mm -hmm. And he, he can orchestrate it for you. right on the. I mean, it was just magic. That's what the Beatles had with George
1: Martin. So the first album you release with those guys is what year? I was about 65. And how did that album do? It did okay. It did okay. So right away there was some appetite for your recorded
3: sound. Well, here's where the good luck came in, because, see, uh, in in those days, when you worked in a club, everybody was 21 or over. Uh-huh. So the proprietors, they wanted you to do covers. They didn't. They were not interested in the least in anything that you had to say originally. I found these songs that people didn't know. I would find them. Like, for example, I found Mustang Sally, and I heard this thing on the radio. And then I heard this song called Good Love It. From the first time we paid good Lovin'. everybody got up and danced right so the first album contained good loving so what they did atlantic is they put that out as the second signal it was number one so all of a sudden this little obscure bunch of guys coming into the studio guessing trying to figure out what the hell is going on we were stars we were big so the table turned a little bit and now we got a chance to do our thing unproven totally unproven and and we got lucky
1: This is How Can I Be Sure, sung by The Rascals' other lead vocalist, Eddie Brigatti. Felix Cavalieri is not the only guest on our show who mentions an individual producer for the success of his recording career. Go to our archives and listen to my conversation with Daryl Hall, who credits the same producer for developing Hall & Oates sound. Is there a producer that comes into your life that takes you to the next level that helps you make the sound that becomes your sound? Yeah. Arif Martin, the producer-arranger behind Donny Hathaway, Aretha Franklin, his... his What label was he with? Atlantic Records. So I was in that world, in that scene. I mean, I remember Ahmet saying to me and John, he said, just make music. We'll figure out how to sell it. Here, the rest of my conversation with Daryl Hall at heresthething.org. After the break, Felix Cavalieri talks about the Rascals' appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, and the moment when Eddie Brigatti decided to leave the band. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care... Carrie Yuma knows fast fashions not sustainable, and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber. And every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at com slash
2: alec. bits
1: i'm alec baldwin and you're listening to here's the thing in 1970 rolling stone magazine dubbed the rascals the blackest white group the rascals were considered a crossover rock and soul act popular on both black R&B and white stations. Felix felt a strong connection to black musicians and civil rights, eventually insisting the Rascals would only perform if black acts were on the ticket, a choice that eliminated parts of the country from the Rascals' tour schedule. Felix and Eddie Brigatti wrote most of the group's songs, and they were eager to reflect the politics of the time through their music.
3: The industry changed thanks to Bob Dylan and, and the Beatles and the Stones. And all of a sudden, people were writing. Prior to that, we would go to publishers and they would give you songs. That's how Neil Diamond and Carol King started off. But when those guys came out, now all of a sudden you could write. At least that was the theory. So you have to have a lot of good luck to be able to write and get hit records with the bar up that high. See, because those Beatles, they had some pretty good songs, you know what I'm saying? So you want to survive. That's the level, dude. That's where you got to be.
1: Now, in the band, is everybody or are people in pairs or whatever the dynamic is, are they co-writing together or are you all writing your own songs on your own? Did you co-write with anybody in the band or outside the band?
3: Yeah, I I, I co-wrote with Eddie because I thought a Lennon-McCartney team would be really cool. And and I always felt that he he was a little better than I was with the lyrics because I was too serious. I put some serious words down there, you know, especially when I got into my political life or whatever you want to call it. I I mean, I was a pretty serious guy. Keyboard players have a tendency to be a little less nuts than some of the other guys in the band.
1: Well, let's talk about the political aspect. When when you say became political, what, what are you referring to?
3: I started working for Robert Kennedy's campaign.
1: The 68 campaign.
3: Yeah. I think a lot of us in those days were involved. We gave a damn about our world. So I got involved and I was dating this woman at the time who was there at the assassination. And man, she was never the same. She wigged out. That's how people got to be free came out. I I said, man, I got to say something. I don't know why people think that musicians and actors and people are really not allowed to have an opinion. And I, I say this in my show because you have a right to say something. Now, you don't have to get everybody mad. My God, nowadays, you got the Dixie Chicks, that come out, and all of a sudden, everybody blackballs them. It's nonsense. So we wrote, I wrote, People Gotta Be Free, and they didn't want to put it out the label. We had control.
1: And you got it out there.
3: That was in our contract, and and so me and Jerry Wexler went head to head. You know, it was a great relationship, man. But I said, "Put, look, we got to put this out, man. This is, it just, it means something that people know where we're coming from."
1: But at the same time, and you mentioned the Beatles because the Beatles had this happen. I think in Florida, where they wouldn't play because it was a whites-only audience. We had that. What was the venue? where, where did all that play out? What
3: happened? I was Baltimore, I think, and there was this group, I think it was called the Young Holt Trio. It was a black group, but they weren't really black music. They were crossover music. So we were crossed over. When we had a hit, we had the R&B stations and the white stations. So these guys came up to me backstage and they said, Mr. Cavalieri Felix, uh, we really like to play for white audiences sometimes. And I said, you know, man, I love to play for black audiences sometimes because they rock. And it hit me. Why not? Let's have a black act opening up for us. I had no idea the trouble, because little did I know when we went down south, where I'm living now, (laughs) it's so stupid. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, really, you love the music, but you can't come to the shows. I, I mean, wait a second.
1: Did you have any, were there protests? Oh, or, yeah. What was the, oh, were yeah. the reverberations from them?
3: I got to know Stokely Carmichael and all those guys because they came out to some of the gigs. Their promoters wouldn't let us play sometimes. You know, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have the shows. So I went to school with, I don't know if you know who Mickey Schwerner was. He was one of those guys that went down to Mississippi, got killed.
1: Yeah, I remember Schwerner, yeah. Chaney, Schwerner, and Goodman.
3: Yeah, he was in my school. So I I got really, in, in the beginning of my life, for a number of reasons, mostly because of our Italian heritage, I got pretty rebelized. I didn't like the way people treated
1: Were your parents or grandparents victimized by prejudice as immigrants? Absolutely. So you carried that with you?
3: I really carried that with me. Now, long story short, you know, my mom was a very educated person. And, you know, when we moved to Westchester County, there weren't too many of us around in those days. Right. And they really insulted her. It was a long story, but very simply, uh, she wanted to join this club, this flower club, whatever it was. They said, oh, certainly we could use somebody to serve lunch. And I said, what did you say? Oh my God. <laughs> Come back oh my here. God. Hold on. So I hit this chord a long time ago. And I don't like it. I don't like it today because I I don't understand it. You know, I I think that, uh, you know, as you know, our nation right now, it's pretty divided. I I don't understand that. Somebody's got to explain to me.
1: To me, it's like people are either going to embrace the change or the change is going to come down on top of them. But when you say that your girlfriend at the time... She worked on the Kennedy campaign
2: yeah.
1: right around the time you're starting to really make it in the business. They refer to you as a very black-white band, the black-sounding white band, correct? correct. You start to hear a bit of that?
3: Absolutely. We were the first white act on the red and black Atlantic label. And you know, the best story I have is Otis Redding, man. Because in those days, they didn't quite, especially in Atlantic, they didn't have all the barriers up, like recording, do not enter. So he came knocking on the door one day, looks and he goes, my God, they are white. (laughs) They didn't know. There was no videos per se in those days. They didn't know. And of course, to me, that was like, Very cool thing because we're walking around the halls with guys like I I have every record they ever made (laughs) Sam and Dave and Benny King and some of these jazz greats. They're all walking the halls of Atlantic Records, and so am I. So I I felt it was pretty cool. I really enjoyed it. And you do Sullivan
1: what year? You guys were on Sullivan twice. Oh, no,
3: we were on about five or six times. Oh, no, you, oh, really? I had to tell Sid, you know, enough, (laughs) you know, because we're overexposing. Yeah, that was a real. Interesting show. Let me tell you. Right. I'll never
1: forget one of the best books I ever read to appreciate the seams the, the to the timeline and the seams in the timeline of the business was Nick Tosh's biography of Dean Martin, ah, Dino.
3: Yes. And man,
1: you can't believe how you see that line where Elvis comes along and Dean Martin says, I'm doing what Bing Crosby did. And now Elvis is doing what I. It's like a line Bing Crosby. Dean Martin, Elvis. The style's a little different, the lyrics are different, the songs are different, but crooning is crooning. And it's hard to believe, for people to understand, that a guy of Sullivan's background, who was really the staple of the vaudeville era. Well, he was a journalist. He was a journalist, he was a columnist. Columnist. Yeah. And then he he wrote an entertainment column, like, a, you know, Army Archer. To yeah, that's have. right. And he's this unlikely gatekeeper. <laughs> he's such an unlikely figure. He's this skinny, little guy who's, you know, uh, his weird style of talking For people who were obviously talking to people who don't know Sullivan, which I'm sure most people do. And yet these emerging acts, including the Beatles, of course, use that show as the platform to becoming really famous in the United States. It's the show. That's right. And you guys did that show five times. (laughs) Yes. What was that like?
3: It was an experience because we had to be there six, actually seven days a week. We started on Monday at 7 a.m. And, you know, we kind of run through, run through, run through, run through. It was very, very strictly run. Saturday night, we did a live show with no TV, but there was an audience. And then Sunday, we'd do the real thing. And the real thing, he screwed it up every time because he would see someone in the audience that he knew. And as he was getting older, he'd lose his place. And there you go. Now, you just lost 15, 20 seconds. Where are we going to get it from? <laughs> We're going to get right. it from. Really? Oh, yeah. And Jackie really? Mason can tell you that story. It was really exciting because it was live, not taped, live. He didn't know how to deal with us Our generations of uh, You know, I, I could tell that he really wasn't Too fond of a lot
1: of them. Yeah. He wanted Pat Boone <laughs>
3: he, to come he really Because I, I got into this thing with his Staff because after a while The rock bands became like the draw for The show, you know, you want to The sure. kids want to see the beginning and the end
1: He created a monster
3: <laughs> However, the dressing rooms did not show that I said, now wait a second, now this guy over here He's about 95, you know what I mean He's got a whole yeah. floor, you know, and we're over here in this closet. I said, that's not going to work. It was too much. It was too much, man. Like I remember my dad, you know, my dad was a dentist. You could not be any more conservative than my dad. It was impossible. Do you remember a show that was the week that was? Yes. There was this lovely blonde. I think her name was Nancy. My dad really liked her. He liked her. She was on the show with us. So I said, dad, come on into the, come on into the green room. And here he is, Right, standing, it was so much fun. His dream uh, comes we true. Had so much fun, man. Like I say, that's the shame of the way our group broke up because we, we had a lot of fun, you know, a bunch of crazy kids.
1: And when you say the shame of the way the group broke up, describe that, if you will, I mean, to the extent that you can.
3: Well, it was really a sad situation because uh, here we are. We were free agents, we were going from Atlantic to Columbia. And Columbia in those days was an international label. Atlantic had just become an international label. When Zeppelin got there, they signed up with Warner Brothers. Now they were an international label. But prior to that, it was a little difficult for us in, in Europe and other countries because we had a different record company.
1: Is that why you went to Columbia?
3: Yes. And at the signing, Eddie Brigatti just decides he doesn't want to do this anymore. I said, that's nice. There's a contract on the table. <laughs> what should I tell them? And that started like this kind of like real negativity that happened. It actually started before that.
1: What do you think it was? Why was he unhappy? What did he want to do? What direction did he want to go in?
3: I don't, I don't think it had anything to do with any of that. I, I think that some people can live like a gypsy and some people can't. Yeah. Eddie was extremely attached to his family.
1: Where did he live? Where was his home?
3: He was a Jersey guy. He's New Jersey. He lived in Jersey. He's a Jersey guy. We had two Jerseys. And he just
1: he just didn't want to. He just didn't want to travel
3: anymore. He was an unhappy camper. And it's so funny because he had more fun than all of us put together on the road. He, he was a wild man. So I, I don't know. I, I, I was really saddened by it because the car, we lost a wheel, you know, and it was really tough to keep spinning.
1: And he left right then?
3: Left at the signing. And he didn't come back? He did not come back.
1: And you've never done reunions with him? Nothing? Well,
3: we did a reunion. We did a reunion. So
1: he so he would come back and, and do and stick his toe in there?
3: Well, he came back forty years, forty five years later. Really? Yeah. Steve Van Zandt had this idea to to do something with us, and so he uh, contacted us all. Actually, it was it was an interesting situation. We started off with uh, that cancer program that Kristen Carr, I think it is, that Bruce and he does, and uh, unfortunately, one of my one of my girls had that, and so uh, I when he asked us if we would do a re- reunion, we did it, and then from there. I was able to get some real good help from my kid. And after that, they, he wanted to do this Broadway show kind of idea. So we did that. It was called Once Upon a Dream. That was the last time we worked wow. together. It was approximately 2013.
1: What's interesting to me is when you see people have this good thing and they have a good chemistry and not all of them, <laughs> but some of them move on to other acts which don't replicate that success. Yeah, it's, it's tough. That sound is not the same. And so, so you replace him with
3: who? Wow, we tried to put together something else. I I, I did a complete, you know, turn and, and I found some really talented guys. We did two albums on Columbia that were pretty good albums. They were more jazz oriented and a little bit more open because at that time we were jumping into the FM world rather than the AM with the hits, hits, hits. It just wasn't the same, you know, because you know, a group is a group. But I mean it's just so silly. I mean, you know, like you don't break up a winning team. Now you notice a lot of the groups, especially the English groups, They stay together. They may not uh, really get along that well, but they stay together. That's something that I've always kind of been, I'm sorry about. You know, I, I wish we could have remained friends.
1: So the year that you're at the signing and Eddie splits, what year is that?
3: 1970, approximately, yeah. 1970. 50 years ago. Yeah, a long time ago, man.
1: So what I'm saying. But, but you have a contract on the table. You have a contract in front of you. In order to fulfill that contract, who takes Eddie's place? Well,
3: we, I, I brought a fellow in that I thought could help. And then we changed the group entirely, you know. And, and uh, Clive Davis, he, he, he gave us the benefit of the doubt. He said, well, let's keep going, you know. Actually, you know, it, it's just a shame, you know, because so we had a good thing going. We had a good team, and the team was good, you know. But, you know— it, Things happen. I'm sure it's happened to many people in many businesses. They have these partnerships and these situations, and then all of a sudden, you know, it just doesn't work out. For what reason? I can't answer that. I mean, we had no embezzling. Nobody took anybody's wife. You know, there was nothing, you know, real. I don't think we really had any drug problems that I was aware of. Just uh, stupidity.
1: When you're coming up and you're performing in the 60s, when you guys really break out, Everything is radio. When I bought a Sony transistor radio with the old earpiece, the individual earpiece you'd plug in. Oh, yeah. So I could play music under the covers of my bed at night when I'm like 14, 15, 16 years old. And I'm listening to Build Me Up Buttercup Mm -hmm. and all the Mm -hmm. other AM hits of the 60s. When did you begin to sense that the music business was changing in terms of content?
3: Right after Woodstock. Woodstock was the beginning of the end because the big guys came in, the corporations. Right. Aha, there's an audience here. Let's go get them. And they did. See? And then what was a, you know, mom and pa business, you know, turned into a conglomerate business, which is, you know, where we are today you know let's see now see now who put this group together i think god put this group together how about if i try it we can put together a super group we'll just match them up that's all it doesn't work like that you know and then you know little things like you know you know we used to have uh, illegal payola well how about legal commercials i can buy 15 minutes of your time can't i and I can do what I want. Right. It's progressed to the point of where we have that. What do you call it? I hate to say a Patriot Act, and we can now buy our way right. into whatever we want. That's what happened yeah. to the music business. However, I always feel that talent, such as Prince, Elton John, there is going to be a lot more people like that coming around, and and they will buck this system, you know, and they will they will be known and and famous because they're so darn good. That's that's how I believe. So I, it's not that I'm all you know coming from a negative point of view, but I think the corporations really took the charm. You know, I mean, like for example, when we used to travel around the U.S., we go to New Orleans, we'd hear New Orleans music. Yeah. We go to L.A., we hear Beach music. It's all the same everybody's got the same playlists. Okay.
1: It's like driving down the interstate and all the restaurants are the same and every restaurant. Where am I? Where am I? (laughs) Where am I? Yeah, we've lost the indigenous flavor.
3: Because, you know, what you were saying about, you know, with your transistor radio, you see, the people who were around in those days, they all have that joy of listening to the music just like you did. We all have that, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like Ringo, like when he gets on stage, you got to pull him off the stage. He, he doesn't need to yeah. be on stage, for God's sake. Right. He's just, it's in his soul, you know, and, and that's that's the type of people, like we go around with the zombies and people like that, they want to play. And man, I miss it, I tell you, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to getting back out there, I tell you.
1: rascals singer and keyboard player Felix Cavalieri if you're enjoying this episode please follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there we'd love for you to leave us a review when we return from the break Felix Cavalieri talks about producing artists like Laura Nero and why he always ends up back out on the road
3: Staying healthy isn't easy.
1: Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices
2: of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $899. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Simply by Frito-Lay. These days, you have a lot going on. But now, thanks to Simply by Frito-Lay, you have one less thing to worry about. So kick back and enjoy your favorite Frito-Lay snacks with ingredients to feel good about, like Simply Blue Corn Tostitos, Sea Salted Ruffles, and even White Cheddar Cheetos pups, all made with no artificial colors or flavors. Enjoy what you love and look for Simply Brand snacks online or at a store near you.
1: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Since we were both raised on rock and roll, I wanted to know if Felix remembers the first time he heard The Rascals on his transistor radio.
3: First smash it was good loving, but the first time we heard ourselves on the radio was uh, we were in New York. We were all living together in this hotel in New York, and Cousin Brucie played I Ain't Going to At My Heart Anymore. 77 W.A.B.C. And you know he's back there now. He's, he's back on, right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, he's in his 80s. He's still rocking, man. He's still going. Can you believe yeah, that? Yeah, God bless Can him, you man. You that? know what? That's the real deal there, man. So shout out to him, man, because he's a good man, too. First time you hear it, I mean, we were walking on the street with that same little transistor radio. Oh, my God. It was so cool. What song? It was I Ain't Gonna Edit My Heart Anymore. But you know, sometimes I'm walking in, like you know, Publix or one of the supermarkets, and I, and I hear one of my songs, and I go, <laughs> "That's cool." They don't know, man. That's me up there, bro.
1: That's so beautiful.
3: It's a thrill. When you would
1: record, or when you would perform live, was there a ritual for you? Or did you Did you wake up and you were ready?
3: You know, man, you wake up and you're ready. You know, I mean, like I say, we, we had a ritual, but the ritual also included, you know, the writing of the song, the, the recording of the song, the producing of the song, and the playing of the song, because we played our own instruments. You know, we, we only had one extra guy, because we didn't have a bass player. You know, I, I, I had a bass player on my foot, you know, on the organ. So when we went in, yeah, you had to be ready.
1: Now, are you producing now? Are you writing songs down there and producing down there?
3: Well, I, I was trying to before all this happened. I, 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 You know, we got some really, really talented people around here. This is really cool. It's a great place for, for musicians, you know, and, and up-and-coming people. The problem is that, you know, I don't want to tune anybody up. I, I, I want them to be able to sing.
1: You mean computer-enhanced.
3: Yeah, and so I it, it, that, that limits a lot of the—
1: So less of them can really deliver the goods.
3: Absolutely. That's why you got that big do not enter sign (laughs) recording. You You don't want to hear this. And it's just, it's too bad.
1: What are some of the other acts over these past several years? You've been down there 30 years down there. You did produce people like Laura Nero, correct? Yes. How did that association get made? Who brought you together?
3: Her manager was a gentleman by the name of David Geffitt. He also managed Joni, and I think he managed Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And, and, and let me tell you something. He was really a good manager. And he invited me up. He says, how would you like to meet the most difficult person you've ever met? I said, wow, I can hardly wait. <laughs> he says, Laura has mentioned you many times. She really enjoys your work. Would, would you like to produce Laura near?" It was a life-changing event. She was the coolest lady I ever met in my life. Wow. Oh, man, she was so talented s complete opposite of what we're talking about. Like she could care less if she sold a record. She just wanted to make art. Right. That was her thing. For example, I called up Arif. I said, Arif, I, I got this great opportunity to produce this gem would you like to join me? Would you like to help me? And he said, yeah, because, you know, it's interesting in those days he was working for Ahmed Erdogan and those guys over in Atlantic. And they didn't realize that they had a complete absolute diamond in the rough with this guy. So when, he, when I took him out of there uh, and, and we went over to Columbia to produce Laura, they immediately made him a vice president. But, you know, immediately they put him on the big time payroll. But anyway, what happened basically is is that she just had a a, a kind of a almost like another century outlook on things. Yeah, you know, like if she was born a hundred years ago, it would have made a lot of sense where she was at, you know? How much did you work with her? You did one album with her? I worked with her I did I I, I did two albums with her. Uh, the second one I was kind of brought in as a relief mechanism because she was kind of getting a little bit too far out or too far in, really, because she, she didn't even want to go to studios anymore. She wanted to work out of her home. So I, I was called in to kind of finish a couple of projects for her. But what a talent.
1: But did you sense then, or did you sense later on, that you could have had a career just producing people like that? Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I think I could have done that as well. But, you know, as I say...
1: You didn't want that. You didn't want to pass it on, so to speak.
3: I love getting on stage and singing and playing, man. You know, it's it's hard to get that out of your system, especially when people want to hear you, you know. If you work and nobody comes out to see you, okay. But, you know, they, they, were, they were coming out, and I decided, let me keep doing that. And producing also became something, uh, again, now, it, it's a huge industry now. As a matter of fact, it's taken precedence over the actual song and, in some cases, the singer, because the production could be so maddeningly good that it's a hit. You know, and and a lot of it is done in a box, in a computer. Who's the cream that's rising to the top now in the music business? Is there anybody you like? Oh, they're coming, they're, they're coming. Up. There's so much talent out there, it's ridiculous. The thing is, it's just, there's so much out there. How, how do you, you know, you, you try to tune into what's going on. It's too much. It's impossible. Too much. There's good things like I'm talking about streaming, but there's good things about streaming. I mean, like, for example, I had a phenomenal record collection. You know, I I used to not have lunch, man. I would go up and buy, you know, like the music and, you know, it all burnt. I had a big fire. It all, it's all gone.
1: So so did Orbison. That's so funny. Yeah. R- 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 Roy's house in Malibu burned and he lost Everything. all of his archive. And I had like, Classical stuff,
3: man. I mean, I had phenomenal. Where did that happen? Where was the house? I was in, I was in Tennessee, you know, down here in Tennessee. My kids. Your house there caught fire. Yeah, my my kids left the uh, fluorescent light on, and but anyway, thank God, nobody got hurt. My granddaughter was there, and you know, we were okay. Everything was good except for the house. How many kids do you have? I had five. I already lost one of my kids and I don't want to ever do that again. You know, it's a, it's a tough thing. You lost one of your kids. Yeah. My daughter. Yeah. She, uh, that's the reason we did that cancer foundation. She, she had it.
1: She had cancer. Uh, Yeah. And Long Island, you know, how old was she passed away? She was how old 40s. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's horrible. Are any of them in the business at all?
3: Thank God. No. Now they got the idea. They get it. You know, I've got a couple of my daughters. I mean, they're really excellent singers. But, you know, they, she tried. She went into New York and got beat up immediately. She said, you know, I'm going to go raise a family, you know. But go, but go back if you wouldn't
1: tell me. So, so the house catches fire, a horrible tragedy, and you lost your record collection.
3: All of it. And I lost my Hall of Fame trophy. They won't even give me another one, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I lost all that stuff. They wouldn't give you another Rock and Roll Hall of Fame trophy? No, 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 because so many people sell them.
1: I'm not asking you to choose one, but among the many you would choose, if you could take an album out of that old vinyl collection, if we could restore that vinyl collection mm. and you could put an album on a turntable and lay back and play some music that would transport you, what would you put on the turntable?
3: Well, you know, seriously, as, as I learned to appreciate, you know, the the music comes out of uh, you know, the classical world, I'd have to say somebody from the, from that world, you know, like, you would play classical music? Yeah, because first of all, I, I want to stay alive for that 45 minutes an hour to hear it. <laughs> None of these three-minute songs, man. Right, right,
1: right. <laughs> Who is among your favorite classical composers? Oh,
3: all of the pianists, the Chopin's and Schubert's and...
1: Debussy. Yeah, oh, and man,
3: so as I say, there's something about the lack of lyric that transports you to a different place. I'll tell you, man, I did a symphony with my music here down in Nashville. We've got an excellent symphony orchestra here. And it was really, really an honor, a treat for me to do that. You you performed with them? I performed with a 75-piece orchestra. What did you play? Uh, I played my
1: whole repertoire, everything. Oh, you played your music with them?
3: I did all my music. It was fantastic. It's just something, after all these years, to bring that back. Those guys have been around a long time, man. That's good music, really good music. But you know what you're saying, and and I see the joy when you're speaking about that little transistor radio. That's how it is when I'm playing for my audiences out there. That's what we had was that connection, that musical connection. People really loved that music. It's part of your soul. It's part, oh yeah, oh yeah, man. So I try to connect everybody like that, make them sing you make them feel together yeah. you know, like when you do it at Billy Joel's Madison Square they know every word yeah. every word come on man that that's magic I wish I could
1: come see your shows because a lot of your songs I know every word too there you go we'll get there yeah exactly when this is over thanks for doing this with us man thank you
3: uh, thank you on a Sunday afternoon
1: Felix Cavalieri of The Rascals I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio.
0: I can't- We like to do. There's always lots of things that we can see. We can't be anywhere we like to be. All those happy people we could meet. Get ready for a gloves-off spin on the Classic Advice Show with the Dear Chelsea Podcast. Comedian Chelsea Handler and her assistant slash confidant slash co-host, Brandon Marlowe, lead the podcast that offers unvarnished, hilarious, and empowering advice to people from all walks of life. Instinctively, I would always tell everybody to just, like, reach for their dreams and and go for it and take a huge risk in life. Listen to Dear Chelsea on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.